Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Coaches Corner University. I am Paul O'Need. I am your host, and today I'm joined by you know one of my favorite people, Curtis Miller. Curtis is a strength and conditioning coach, owner of Ironbound Strength, and uh, someone who I've had the pleasure of getting to know and working with over the last little bit. Curtis, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Paul, thanks for having me, man. I've been looking forward to this one. Me too. You know, every you keep time ducking me. <laughs> Dude, I know. And every time we get together in person, you know, we, we have these like two hour conversations over way too much coffee yep. and we're like, dude, we just need to, we just need to get on a podcast and, and continue this. So here we are, man. Yeah. Um, so listen, tell anyone who doesn't know who Curtis is, shame on you. Uh, but for the people who don't tell us a little bit about, about, about Curtis, like what brought you here today? All right, man. Well, um, you know, I grew up in a very small town in Maryland, Denton, Maryland, and um, grew up around sports, um, you know, played soccer, played baseball, and, you know, had great parents growing up, um, just did a really great job of letting me make my own mistakes, yeah. but teaching me from my mistakes and, and, you know, just really helping me grow on my own and, and do the things that I really wanted to do and, and that I found interest in. Um, I was actually big into cars and I actually, you know, after high school for a living, that's what I did. I, I worked on cars, um, custom sheet metal, custom fabrication. Oh, I that didn't know was, that. That's cool. Yeah, man. So that was in, uh, like 2007. And of course the economy was really terrible then. And a lot of the companies, the businesses that I was working for, they were shutting down. Because nobody, nobody wanted to do anything to their hot rods, you know. And um, that's really when I found my love for the gym. Because after high school, I, I didn't initially go to college. And, you know, I, I was going through all these jobs and, and my career was not working out the way I wanted it to. And I needed to find something to fill that competitiveness. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my friends actually got me into the gym. And, you know, when I was in high school, our, our sports coaches were, were very old school. They didn't really believe in, in lifting. They believed in practicing the game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, of course, we would do a lot of running. We would do, you know, a lot of skill work, but never any resistance training, never any lifting. Um, so I didn't really do much of that in high school. And, you know, after, after high school is when I found the gym. Um, absolutely fell in love with it because it was a, it was a weird point in my life. You know, I, um, didn't have a job. Uh, I was going to have to change careers and I spent so much time lifting, researching about lifting, um, you know, just strength and conditioning training in general. It's when I first found elite FTS and, you know, this is like 2008 yep. and, um, you know, I, I was talking to my sister one day. I was like, I really think I want to do this for a living. And her response was, well, you know, don't wait until you're my age to go back to school like I did. You know, she was in her 30s at the time. Oh, wow. And she said, she said, if this is something that you really want to do, go after it. And, you know, so I went back to school, um, went to Salisbury University. Um, studied, studied under some, some really good guys down there, learned a lot. And, uh, you know, I mean, the rest is history. That's, that's when I 
decided to do my first meet. Um, that's yeah, that was when I, my next question. Yeah. Yeah. The, during that time, um, I felt like so much had, had happened and changed in a, in a very short amount of time. Um, when I first started lifting, I, I didn't have any guidance, you know, my in-person guidance, I will say, yeah. you know, my, my guidance was muscle and fitness magazine, which I had a subscription to. And then elite FTS articles every night before I, before I went to bed until like one or two in the morning. And, um, that, you know, that's, that's how it got started. And, um, you know, first meet was in, first meet was in 2012. So I lifted for a few years before I decided to compete. Because mm -hmm. I was just like everybody else, you know, it's like, well, I want to, I'm not ready to do a meet yet. You know, I, I want to make sure I'm, I'm hitting these numbers before I do a meet. I didn't even know powerlifting was a thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. When I was lifting, I was like, well, I had, you know, I want to be a better basketball player. I'm going to lift. I want to be a better, bigger football player. I'm going to lift. I'm rehabbing this knee surgery. I'm going to lift. It wasn't until I got to South Florida where they were like, yeah, like you got to fucking compete in something because these kids don't give a shit about you. <laughs> right. That's, it's, I mean, it, talk about the best way to build street cred, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> jump, jump on a platform, lift some weights. I, yeah, I was just on uh, on Ali Gilbert's podcast this morning and talking about like ego. I'm like, listen, we all have egos. And we were talking about this when we had coffee the other the couple months back. You know, even though I'm lifting with some strong dudes now and there's some young cats in the gym, listen, I'm gonna show you who's the man. Yeah. And that's important. Yeah. It's I thought it's 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 a lost art. It's yeah. like I feel like when we were coming up, there were the older guys that talked about what they used to do. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying everybody, I'm not saying all the older guys, but you know, we're the type of dudes that we're going to show you or, or hurt ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I don't think that either one of us are, are to that. Like, yeah, we're in our thirties, dude. Like we're still yeah. young we have a lot left to accomplish, but you're seeing so many younger individuals get into lifting now, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that the way some people are going about getting into lifting now could be a little different, could be a little more beneficial. And that's where I think we come in and we're like, look, I, I love what you're doing. I like how things are evolving. Yet, I think you would benefit from, you know, a little bit of like old school mentality. Okay, so this is a really good talking point. And I'm glad you brought it up because I think there's a changing of the guard right now in terms of the types of people that young lifters look up to. Mm -hmm. back, when, back when we were younger, we looked up to the guys who had work ethic, the guys who were tough as nails. I remember, you know, like the old Chuck Vogapol walking down an alley with two pit bulls and a tank top kind of like that. That's the kind of stuff we looked up to. Now the kids look up to people who haven't really accomplished anything meaningful, but can talk a big game like the, you know, nerds, dorks, those types of people. <laughs> <laughs> guys who can buy off the rack. Um, 
<laughs> so well where i'm going with this is like the motivations behind why they start lifting i think have changed i think i think the majority of people if you took the phone out of their hand and took social media out of the equation i don't think they'd be lifting you're exactly right i think you know where where i train union fitness in pittsburgh we're fortunate because we have some some guys like myself who have been around lifting for a long time, but then a lot of the Pitt University powerlifting team will come there and train. So I get to see a really broad spectrum of lifters and, you know, getting to talk to them and, and pick their brains and, and understand why it is that they train a little bit. And I would say a majority of them, not all of them, but a majority, once they graduate college and they're no longer in that team powerlifting atmosphere they don't compete anymore some of them don't even lift anymore so i think i think the reason people are getting into lifting is much different like you said and i think that's why you're seeing the modern powerlifter is their their lifespan you know i yeah, would say i would agree with that in in powerlifting i think it's a multifactorial thing too cuz you have the motivations are purely extrinsic right they're they're not in it because they actually love it they're in it because they get some sort of social validation mm -hmm. but then on top of that there is this like highly specific highly um like intensity frequency focused approach i think a lot of them just burn out i would agree because and like you could talk about results you could talk about whatever but like i never trained heavy unless i was competing kids are lifting 80 90 percent year round yes and the you're argument doing it is like specificity right if you yes. want to get good at lifting heavy you have to lift heavy for sure totally agree that's what the evidence says but that's not the only way to get strong mm -hmm. and there's also a person involved in that process and this is something where i think you you shine as a coach that person needs to be the center of attention and if you have this system that's organized with external validation and a highly specific high high churn rate approach, that's why you don't have a lot of guys that are you know 30, 35, 40 that are still competing. I would agree. I think you know when you're first when you're first starting out as a lifter, it, 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 when you say I want to compete in powerlifting or I want to compete in anything, you have to have the specificity because you have to develop the skill. Right. You know, it's, it's gotta be thousands and thousands of repetitions done, done correctly right. or efficiently. But then after time, how are you going to continue to progress it? Like if you're, let's, let's say you're squatting twice a week with that mindset, what are you going to do? Are you going to squat three times a week? And then when you stop progressing from that, what are you going to do next? Are you going to squat four times a week? You know, like you're digging yourself a hole. Mm -hmm. So, you see the you see the benefits very quickly, but you don't see them last. Um, and, and it's I mean, the body is capable of some crazy things. Oh, well, but it, it but it but it can't withstand years of strictly specificity. And when I say years, I mean, you know, Matt Wenning always talks about the the ones who you know progress the best are the ones who last the longest. And you have to give yourself the opportunity to progress and reach your and reach your full potential. 
And I think if you're focusing only on specificity, you're not going to be able to get to that point. You will see it immediately in, in more instant gratification, but right. you're, you're taking away the benefits of, of longevity. So I, I like to, like, I totally agree with you and I'm going to continue to, to build on that because when you talk about ways to increase strength, the fastest specificity is going to be right there because you're going to get that really quick neurological adaptation. After you're maximized in terms of neurological adaptation, the only way to get stronger is to get bigger. You have to have more muscle to be able to use that, you know, that high efficiency Ferrari engine of a, of a central nervous system to fire. One of the things, this is going to sound really funny. These kids don't look like they lift. No, no. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Like, uh, I want to, I want to walk in a room and this is again, pure ego. I want to walk in a room and I want people to go like, okay, that guy's a fucking tough motherfucker. That's right. That's right, dude. And, but we also, the, the people that we saw men and women powerlifting when we started powerlifting were jacked. Yes. You know, they, in the strongest people were jacked. It, it, it wasn't even like, like there was a direct correlation with how much you lifted and how much muscle you had. And I think that's like, that is what we always saw. And that's yeah. what we want. But you, you know, going back to, to more modern lifting is you see people who are freaks. Oh, for like, sure. People just coming off the street, maybe out of high school or maybe out of college and just get on their bar and move unbelievable weight like i've never seen yep you know they're seeing we also have the opportunity to see people through social media lift these weights so we understand what's possible yeah but, the four minute mile effect exactly exactly the other thing is there's a lack of focus on lifting efficiency and proper technique now so you see people lifting unbelievable weights, but it looks like like you can tell, you can call it when somebody, you're like, I give that person a couple more years. They're either going to break or they're going to get frustrated because they can't progress any further because the neurological, that neurological input's going to come to a stop yep. and they're not going to be patient enough to take the time to take a step back to fix their shit and put on muscle to continue to progress. It was, uh, it was Andrew Locke who put it to me in probably the most simple way. And he says, he says in his Australian accent, which I'm not even going to try to impersonate. Um, he says, all the world records are done with impeccable technique. Yes. And you look at a Jamal Browner, you look at a Brian Carroll, you look at, uh, Oh, Julio Iglesias, the, mm -hmm. yeah, knees over feet, hips back, neutral spine, beautiful squat mechanics. Mm -hmm. Because at limit strength, everything matters. Biomechanics matters, force production matters, timing matters. So what you're essentially doing, and this is a conversation I have very often because there are a lot of very young, incredibly talented lifters at the gym I'm at. Um, I think about five or six guys who go to Worlds every year. 
And I tell them like, you're creating a glass ceiling because whether you reach that ceiling from neurological adaptation or you reach that ceiling because biomechanically your leverages can't hold up to the loads that you're lifting. And then you get, we'll call them misuse injuries along the way, right? That medial knee pain, that lower back tightness, all those areas where torque dumps, you can't keep up with the training volumes required to like to increase the strength because at some point, all these trade-offs, listen, the tax man's always going to get paid. It's, right. either, it's either going to come via injury or frustration. And, you know, if you're limiting yourself because your technique is suboptimal, but you are continuing to progress your numbers, honestly, I wouldn't change anything either. But the mistake I made was I waited until it was broken before I fixed it, which is why I haven't squatted in two years. So I try not to be, and I don't want this conversation to become like back in my day, but these are lessons learned the hard way. We have the scars, right? Yeah. Yeah. How do you have a conversation with a young lifter? Because I know you do work with quite a few young lifters. How do you, how do you manage that conversation around like, Hey, hold your horses. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously it can be tough because there's a lot of things that you, that you could do more effectively in person, you know, like I can take somebody and I can, I can basically like put my hands on them and adjust them and show them the the benefits of doing something a little different. Mm -hmm. But when, when you're talking, I think, and you and I have had this conversation before, you don't have to be an all-time world record holder to be a good coach. I but, think you're probably better off not being, but okay. Yeah. Yes, yes. But you have to have gone through trial and error and, and certain obstacles to be able to have that conversation effectively with your clients or with anybody. So do I enjoy the fact that I've had the injuries that I've had? No, but have they, you know, have they been able to show other people, um, a, what you could do better, but B, that you can, you can come back from certain things and, and mm-hmm. get, and get better. So for me, it's, it's more of a, you know, Hey, this is the way I used to do it. This is what I changed. And you know, you are very similar to me, and I think you would highly benefit from doing it this way. So trying to communicate, and this is where relation building relationships with your client is so important. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to establish their trust, but you also have to communicate with them in a way that relates yourself to them, not, not bringing yourself up here and them down here but putting yourself on the same level or bringing them up with you, like going down to get them and bring them up with you. So when you're having that conversation, you know, putting yourself in in their shoes and, and voicing it in a way that doesn't make them feel stupid, but makes them understand. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's really, you know, what you were, what you were going. No, through, I but. think that, I think that hits the nail on the head, right? Like that relationship building with the person that you're trying to help. And then at the end of the day, 
when you're having a conversation about change, it's never going to be an easy conversation. It's much easier to have that conversation when there is some sort of call to action, right? If we look at like change psychology, you know, to go from that pre-contemplation phase to contemplation into action, there has to be a call to action, right? There has to be some sort of impetus for change. Usually in the scope of strength and conditioning, it's injury. But it could also be poor performance. And so if you can leverage these calls to action for that individual, it becomes much easier. That hard conversation comes when the person's still making progress. Right? They're, they're still seeing the numbers go up. Um, if they're highly competitive, they're probably not happy the numbers are, go- are going up faster. Yes. But one thing that I always return back to is, do you love it? I always ask them that question because if they love it, they're going to want to do it for a really long time. And this is where my personal experience comes in play. This is also, I can point to the number of people that I've coached through similar situations. And that's how you get the buy-in. You show evidence. Yes. And at the end of the day, maybe that person needs to wait until they get injured. I know I did. I wouldn't have listened to anybody. It wouldn't have mattered what you said. Like, I remember, I remember I was waiting for a knee surgery and I was working with Brian. He's like, bro, just chill. It's okay. Yeah. You'll have the surgery. You'll come back. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to keep training. Meanwhile, I can't walk down any stairs. Right. Trying to front squat four plates. He's like, he's like, okay. And he let me do it. And that's one thing I always will appreciate about Brian. And I've told him that many times is like, I needed to learn that way. And some people do need to learn that way. So that's cool. Say, yeah. I say my piece and I let them go. Yeah, definitely. The other thing that I would, I love, I love studying people. I love watching people. And one of the things that has come, I, I don't know if it's actually a bad thing, but it is a thing with social media is people believe that their points of view determine their value. So if they change their opinion on something, they automatically perceive that as a lack of credibility. Whereas you or I would see that as a professionalism. We would see that as an asset to your professionalism if you can change your mind on something. So you have these young kids. I shouldn't even say young kids, young coaches, young athletes that feel a certain way about something that is the best. And they're always searching for the best way to do something. And then if you come in with another point of view that challenges their narrative, well, they can't accept it because then they're invalid. What I try to tell people is like, you don't have to accept the narrative. You can integrate that new narrative into your current narrative because nothing like all all models are incorrect, but some of them work better than others. Why can't you integrate? Yeah, I mean... My thought process when I was coming through all this was, you know, I'm not the expert, right? I was just, I was starting to dabble in something that I just enjoyed doing. Yeah. So I was listening to people who have been there and done that and taking what I needed to from it. It didn't mean that I was going to to do what every single person was doing or, or what every single person was saying, but you know, we're intelligent human beings and 
and we're smart enough to listen to somebody talk or watch somebody do something and say, hey, something they're doing is working and how can I fit that within myself and my beliefs and, and what I think? And, you know, it, it's, you have to just, it doesn't matter if you're younger, if you're older, you know, you have to be willing to adapt um, to, to different, you know, different situations. This is one thing that I, I kind of conceptualized a few years ago and I've been returning to is like, when you start out, you imitate, right? You imitate everything around you. You do everything and you try to copy and paste into what you're doing. And as you get a little bit more information and you start to realize that there's many roads to Rome, now you start to integrate. Now you start, okay, I've, I started imitating. Now I'm going to take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. I'm going to start to make my own system. And then once, once you've integrated, now you can innovate. Now you can be that person who comes up with the new ideas, the new ways of doing things. And you can't do that without going through the first few steps. Um, and those steps are a long time. Like that's a long, long time. Yeah. So you mentioned learning from a lot of different people. From my understanding, you've had a few different coaches, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, who have you worked with? Yeah. So when I first started, when I first started lifting, like I mentioned, I, I, I didn't have any coaches. I didn't really have any mentors. It was just a lot of trial and error. Um, I managed to, I managed to get decently far. You know, I, I don't know if it was the same year, I, but you know, you and I competed at the Arnold. I can't remember if I was in 2016 or 17. I think I was in but, 16. Okay. I can't, I want to say I was 16 too. I competed um, the year Casey got really sick. Okay. Same, same. Yeah. So we, we were there together. So I was competing in 198. Um, I, I totaled like upper 1600s, I think. And that was when I met Casey and I had, I had been following him from elite FTS, you know, another young guy, just like we were and, you know, super strong. And, uh, I talked to him a little bit that day without bothering him because he wasn't feeling well. And he was getting ready to help open union fitness in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my wife at the time we had just started dating for probably like a year she um she was living down in maryland in the same town that i was but she grew up here in pittsburgh so we started traveling back and forth to see her family up here in pittsburgh and we would stop in and and train in union fitness so he and i got to know each other the, the i got to know the rest of the crew and that's when i hired him as a coach mm. so you know it kind of just seemed like i didn't know where it was going to take me with lifting but I knew that I was ready to go all in, you know, what, yeah. what that meant for me. I know, I understand that everybody's version of all in is, is, Much is really different. Yeah. But for me, I was ready to do whatever I needed to do to become the best power lifter that I could be. And um, started working with him. We started traveling up there, up here, uh, once every probably six weeks. And it was a it was a six hour drive each way, so we would we would drive up Friday night after we would get off work. Some sometimes we would get get up here at like eleven or midnight. Oof. And then we would wake up. We would go to the gym, train, learn, talk, go to lunch afterwards, talk more lifting. Yeah. And then we would get in the car and we would head back home to Maryland, and and 
I finally got to the point where I came home from work one day and I just walk in the door and I'm like, let's move to Pittsburgh. And she, and she's like, what, are you serious? You know, I was, I was that guy that was supposed to live in my hometown for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, long story short, we, we moved up here and it kind of completely just catapulted my lifting career and my, you know, professional career as well. Were you guys married at that time already? No. No. Okay. So you got married after you moved to Pittsburgh. Yeah. So okay, we, cool. we had been living together for a year. In sin. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then we decided to, to move up here. And awesome. at the time when we decided to move up here, um, she had a, she had a great teaching position, but she didn't have one up here yet. And I didn't have a job up here yet. We, we both just kind of were like, hey. we were like, that's where we need to be. We just knew that for, for ourselves and our future, that this is where we need to be. And then finally, I think it was like three weeks before we moved up, Casey called me and he was like, Hey man, um, you know, I need a director of, of training here at the gym. Do you, do you want the position? And I was like, Holy shit. Like, this is, you know, I was worried that I wasn't going to find work. I, I was like, I work at Chipotle and get free, free burritos, you know? Um, but so that fell into place. And then after a couple of weeks of moving up here, my wife ended up getting a, a really good teaching position up nice. here in, in Pittsburgh. So around that time is when um, Casey started, he opened Victory Float Lounge. Mm -hmm. um, so he kind of moved on from that. I did my own programming because that was in and out of, of COVID that was around 2020. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that's when I ended up, we still trained together. We, we got a chance to train together, which was really cool. And he and other guys helped me progress towards my first 2000 pound total. And after that, you know, I was like, you know what? I want to take this. I want to give this everything I have. And I hired Josh Bryant. Very cool. And, and Josh and I worked together for about, we worked together for three meets. And um, part of the reason why I hired him was because I ruptured my bicep um, mm. in the off season one year. And coming back, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go all in. I'm, I'm going to, you know, work with Josh and he helped me get back on the platform after my ruptured bicep. And then we did two more meets together. So, um, learned, learned a very different style of coaching, but similar. Yeah. In many well, I just want to put this into perspective for people. So Curtis and I competed in 2006. He was at 198. I was at 242 and I out totaled him by almost 300 pounds. And then Curtis has totaled over 2000 now and I have not. <laughs> so <laughs> I, think, I think you still have it in you. I honestly do too. And but honestly, before this year, I would have said, no, I'm done. But I, I definitely think I have more in me as well. It's going to be a slow road and I'm totally okay with that. But uh, what would you say? Because I know how Josh coaches. I know how Kate's, Casey used to coach. I also know how you coach. Sure. Stark difference between the two of them. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think has been the biggest influence on you and the way that you coach the people in front of you? Yeah. So it was basically everything that I have gone through in the 11 years that I've been competing. So starting out lifting, I was all gas pedal, didn't know what I was doing. Worked with Casey. He made me work harder, but work smarter. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was like, it was a lot of volume building a lot of muscle. Um, then when I started working with Josh, Josh knew that I was already an established intelligent lifter. Mm -hmm. He also knew that I was more on the reserve side when it came to my lifting. Mm -hmm. And you can ask my, my training partners, you know, Casey, John, Joe, Cody, all of them, they would, they would tell you that they used to have to put more weight on the bar for me when I was training. Like when I, when I was building up to my first 800 pound squat, I would have weight on the bar and they were like, what are you doing? And they, they would, you know, throw like extra 10, 15 pounds on the bar because I was always, I was more reserved. Conservative, right? Yeah. Yep. And when I started working with Josh, Josh was more gas pedal. He was more that kick in the ass. Mm. You know, he, Josh was that. You're going to do this because I, I'm putting this on your, your program because I know you can do it. You're either going to do it or you're going to fail because you're not mentally strong enough for it or you're, you don't have the, the mental intent for it. Right. So for me as a coach now, it's about reading my athlete, mm -hmm. understanding what type of uh, what type of lifter they are and how coachable they are, what they respond to, also what they need. Mm -hmm. you know, if they're if they're a lifter who who tends to be very reserved and lifts kind of slow, I'm going to get up in their ass with stuff that makes them not think and yeah. react. So maybe I program them, you know, rest pause bench or super short rest period to where they they can't think; they mm -hmm. just have to react. Um, if it's a lifter that you know, is, is wanting to go just a hundred miles an hour all the time. I purposely program things to pull them back. Yep. So to get back to your question, I think for me as a coach now, it's understanding what I needed to do to get to the next level. And, and then taking what I learned from the different styles of coaching and then using it to understand what type of athlete that I'm currently coaching. Yeah, I love it. And that's one thing that, you know, makes makes a great coach a great coach is that ability to relate to the person in front of them, to alter the way that they communicate. But not only that, the actual intervention itself, the program has to fit the psychological profile of that person. Yeah. And uh, Christian Thibodeau goes into this quite a bit when he talks about like neurotyping. Have you ever, have you ever listened to anything on that? A little bit. I think it's fascinating. I think it's way too like way too overcomplicated for what it is, but that's typical Christian style. Um, which I since I like appreciate it, but it's yeah. not for me. Um, you know that type A person, that person who is super controlled, all gas pedal, very you know in line and, and with everything. That person's going to fatigue really quickly. That person who's more more type B, more relaxed, reserved, they're going to have a lot more in the gas tank. Pushing intensity is going to be harder. If you know that about the person, 
and you can talk to them in a way that empowers them to do the things that you want them to do. And then you program effectively for whatever their needs are. Well, progress is going to come. That's right. Where I think, again, people miss the boat with all of this is they try to fit the person to the program. What if that person doesn't like lifting the way that you want them to lift? That's right. It ain't going to work. And you're going to have such a negative impact on that person and their outlook on lifting in general. And this is where I'm not, I'm not going to get off topic, but this is where newer lifters coming in. I think it's very important that they find their own way for a little bit. They fall in they fall in love with training before they decide to really start, you know, getting deep into the weeds. Because if you don't have that love to fall back on, it's going to be a very short ride for you. Dude, I can tell you, oh yes, keep talking. Go, go, go. I, I can tell you throughout some of my injuries, you know, with you know, with my my bicep and my hamstrings and quads and, and all this goofy shit. The times when you can't train the way that you want to, you've got to have the passion for training, or you're not going to you're you're not going to want to do it anymore. And I think that's when you see people just get out because when you first start training, you can go gas pedal all the time without any consequences or with very limited consequences. Yep. But when life hits or injuries hit or or, or whatever if you don't have that main reason, you know, for, for why it is that you train, it's going to be a rough time. So I have two, I have two things to add to that because it directly relates to my own story, right? Like when I decided to do a bodybuilding show, it's because I loved training and I couldn't train the way I wanted to. So I needed to find some other pursuit that gave me that same, we'll call it cognitive challenge. I got way more than I bargained for with that. <laughs> Fucking crying, walking my dog, tired. But, I a lot. oh, I learned so much, so much about myself. And it's a, it was purely for the love of training. That's and right. then when I, I remember when I spoke to Danny for the first time about working with me, she's like, what do you want out of this? And I said, I want to have fun training again. I That's it. That's the only goal that I have. And even right now, as I reintegrate the barbell work, I just want to love training again. I want to have fun. I want to be able to push myself. I want to be able to work hard. And when you're always in pain, it's always in the back of your mind. I'm still going to train. Even if I'm in pain, I'm still going to train. I might not be able to do the things that I want to do, but I'm still going to train. It's never going to stop. Whether Instagram's there, whether the business is there or not, I'm going to train. We're going to Jamaica to get married in a couple of weeks. I'm going to train every day. Like right. Liv doesn't want me to, but <laughs> it's my wedding too. Um, yeah. She just she just wants to wake up with me every day. I'm like, okay. Right. You know that. Um, but I also have this conversation with a lot of coaches and I've actually had two or three consults with coaches for mentorship where we get on the call and I'm like, I don't think coaching is for you. Mm -hmm. And they're like, what do you mean? I love it. I'm like, no, you love training 
or you love nutrition. Mm -hmm. You don't love helping people. That's right. Because a lot of what we do, and I'm sure you can speak to this to a, a very specific degree, a lot of what we do has very little to do with training X's and O's, nutrition, and has everything to do with the person and helping the person. Exactly. And if you don't get your high from that interaction, you're not going to be successful. Point blank, period, end of sentence. That's right. Well, there's 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 two types of you know, there's two types of lifters, really, or two two types of, of you know, clients, I'll, I'll say. There's the ones that they just want you to tell them what to do, and they go do it. They'll run through a wall. Yep. You know, you can tell them, hey, you're fucking up. Hey, you need to do this, and they go and fix it. Then there's the other type of person where you got to give them small wins every session or every week, have to have those those you know, long conversations with them, build them up. Right. So you got those two types of people. And if you can't do that as a coach, if you're not willing to take the time and you don't care enough about those, those types of people to be able to put that effort into them, then you're doing this for the wrong reason. I mean, how many people did you go to college with and you ask them like, Hey man, you know, why'd you decide to get into this, you know, this profession and they're like, I love to train. And you're like, that ain't the reason you need to be in this yep. because yes, that's a part of it. You need to love to train, but you got to love helping other people more than you do yourself. Mm -hmm. If you want to be good at it and if you want them to succeed. I'll also bring it back to like the fulfillment of your work. Okay. So if I'm just writing programs for people who want to run through a wall, first and foremost, I'm probably not going to be able to charge what I want to be charging because those right. people just need a plan. They don't need me. They need my writing. So yes. it's not a lot of value. But at that point, and you're just writing programs, where's the fulfillment come from? Where's the payoff come from? In my opinion, the payoff comes from that person thanking you that person teaching their kid how to train properly or that person encouraging their spouse to to train or mm -hmm. that person winning a meet and being able to you know showcase to their friends what they've accomplished mm -hmm. those things matter so much more if you have a relationship with the person That's if you're right. just pen to paper here's your program did you really do anything i don't think you did no, I, I agree. I think at that point, it's a job, not a career. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, well, that's the difference in being a coach and a programmer. And I think, I think the definition and the difference between those two things is very skewed right now because I think that depending on who you ask, you know, everybody, everybody will say they're a coach, but you know, you're not a coach if you just put X's and O's on a paper and gave it to somebody. I'm sorry. Nope. Uh, what what defines a coach is somebody who you you build a relationship with them and you understand the ins and outs and how to continue to help them progress while being able to adjust for their needs. You know, I think a lot of people right now, again, don't want to sound like the old guy, but I think a, a lot of coaches right now, they get their gratification from their 
clients putting their post up and telling everybody, hey, this person's my coach. This is this is what they're doing for me. So a lot of coaches gratification right now isn't coming from seeing their 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 lifters succeed. It's from getting the recognition coming back to them saying, look look what my lifter is doing. I think I think we're also seeing an instance where because there's so much information available, people are using the science to conflate reality. Uh, An example of this would be uh, the growing body of evidence that dictates technique doesn't equal injury. And they've shown it time and time again that technique doesn't equal injury. Well, we forget that these studies are not done years over years. An injury is an overload to a tissue that exceeds capacity. That could be related to time. And the other thing it doesn't necessarily show is the research doesn't necessarily show the changes in technique improve strength. That's right how do you measure technique right so there are limitations to the science so using the science to validate that i don't need to coach this person formally i just need to write a program that allows them to progressively overload that's pretty lazy extreme and i'll be the first to say man listen some people just need a program they just need a program that they can follow and there are tons of amazing programs online that you can follow my wife has two of them i'm going to be launching some in the new year so having programs available, I think, as any coach, as like a low price offering is a fantastic idea. But if you really want to impact people's lives, that comes through relationships. And I think you and I can definitely agree on that one. Um, 100%. I, one thing I want to add to that yeah, real quick is you see a lot of guys, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to name them, but retired powerlifters who had very good lifting careers who have a very different outlook on what powerlifting is about these days. Right. And I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, you know, Greg, Greg and Donnie, Greg and Donnie, both phenomenal lifters, right. Two of the strongest human beings that ever walked the planet did some great things. Mm -hmm. What's important to understand that I think guys like that don't understand is that Powerlifting in the in the the meaning of powerlifting to people has changed over the years, and the type of lifters that we were used to watching and and the type of lifters that we were when we when we started lifting mm. are much different than the type of lifters that are lifting now. So whereas they talk about what a coach is or what powerlifting is about and how powerlifting the the only thing you should want is to go and destroy everybody and win every meet. Yeah, I mean, to an extent, if you want to be the best power lifter, yes. But what's the percentage of lifters who are powerlifting right now who that's their goal? It, it's a very I can tell you because you know, a, a majority of the the meets that I go to, it doesn't have those type of lifters. No. It, it's got people that they want to become the best version of the self that they can. If they don't go and win the fucking meet, they don't care. They mm-hmm. want to walk away better than they did when they stepped on the platform. So that's the type of person that you have to coach. That's, I think a lot of people think that they want that. And I think a lot of people have no idea what's required in order to get that. That's right. 
And all we're doing as coaches is using, using training as a vehicle to teach self-mastery. And that doesn't necessarily involve winning a meet. And I'm going to be the first person to point out right now that you and I are both massive hypocrites because I would fucking love to destroy everybody. That's right. So that's my bias on the table. I'm here to take everyone's lunch money. That's right. But I think the lifter that I am has changed quite a bit over the years. And there's a lot of things that I'm not willing to sacrifice that I used to be able to sacrifice. And as a, as a segue with that statement, what's next for ironbound strength? What's next for Curtis? I know you're, you've got a lot of irons in the fire. What's going on? What's up? What's, you know, the next six to 12 months. Yeah. So, you know, I stepped away a little bit from competing. Um, I I was having some, you know, I, I got sick. I, I tore my quad going into my last competition, the ghost clash. I, uh, I got Lyme disease over the summer. Um, and I, I thought it was a, a good opportunity to take a step back, mm-hmm. focus on my business, focus on my family and, and I guess making up for lost time for the years of being so focused on, on competing and, and being the best lifter that I could. And, you know, my goals for, for this next year are to, um, actually expand the business Okay. Uh, in different ways, you'll just have to wait and, and see what's coming. But bringing some, uh, <laughs> bringing some some other people onto onto the team, some other uh, coaches. Exciting. Cool. Uh, in in you know in different disciplines. Ooh. So that's that's the what's planned for the next year. Also, getting back on the platform. Um, you know my my. Uh, wife and I are, uh, starting a family. Um, so I guess we haven't fully announced it yet, but surprise. Um, (laughs) (laughs) so that was always the goal as well. You know, that I, growing up, I I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I always wanted to be a father Mm -hmm. and you don't know when that's going to happen. You just kind of take things as it comes and I, I kind of seized the, the the timing of, of what the world was telling me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, you know, let, let's do this. And um, it's, it's uh, given me a different perspective and, and such a, a different outlook on, on things right now. And um, I'm really looking forward to using that and that different motivation, that different meaning of, of life and bringing it into why I'm doing what I'm doing whether that's with my business or whether that's with my motivation to be on the platform, the, the thought of showing the, the next generation and, you know, my blood, um, what it means to work hard and to go after what it is that you want in life. Um, at, you know, that makes me emotional just thinking about it. You know, when you told me that when we had coffee in Pittsburgh and you're like, you know, I want to, I want my kid to see me compete it took a while for that to compute for me, but that's very important to me and a a big motivator for me wanting to get back on the platform. But, you know, I love what you said about the prioritization of things and how honestly things just work out, right? If you listen to what you really want and you kind of take the stock of the situation as a whole, and that's hard to do when you're always in it. Mm -hmm. But if you can zoom out, 
and see this big picture and stay above and be like, Hey, like this is everything I'm seeing. This is everything that's going on. And you start acting in alignment with your values, man, everything falls into place and everything becomes so much more clear. Um, I love the idea of building a business in different disciplines. I think with your, uh, like I, even just with the slogan of the business, like being ironbound, being tied to being tied to the iron that extends beyond powerlifting. It sure does. Yep. And it also extends beyond lifting weights in general. Uh, but <clears throat> maybe that's a conversation for another podcast. Yeah, I don't have, <laughs> I have a couple quick hit questions for you. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. First one. What is, well, I think I already know the answer, but what is your dream car? It's your car. Uh, I have it. I know. Uh, uh, a 1969 Mustang. Um, you know, I didn't re just quick summary. When I was 10, my dad comes in my room as I'm playing a racing game on PlayStation. Uh, the original PlayStation. Yeah, the white one. <laughs> and I was racing with a Mustang. And he looks and he laughs and he goes, you want to go pick one of those up? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, let's go. We went. Uh, my mom's boss at the time was selling his. It was a 1970 Mustang. And we went and got it. And it changed my life. And um, it it really helped solidify my relationship with my dad, wow. even throughout a lot of ups and downs in our family. Um, it was the one thing that, that really helped us build a strong relationship. And, um, and, you know, this past summer we had a freak accident, the garage burnt down and we lost the car. And, um, so I, we had this conversation and we yeah. were like, we were like, we're never, I can't go through that again. Um, you know, for, for 25 years, we had that car and we worked on it and, and restored it. And in a matter of minutes, it was gone. So I was convinced that I, we weren't going to do that again. And then I told my wife, I was like, I got to get another one. Like I, I can't mm -hmm. not have one. So I went out, I bought one. And, uh, the day that I told my parents that, you know, we were having a kid, I had opened a box or I gave, I gave my parents a box. And the first thing on top was a pair of keys to the car. And it was like, this is for everything that you guys did for me growing up. This is our car. And then underneath of it, it was a onesie that said grandpa's future racing buddy. Oh <laughs> man. It was like That's the amazing. Coolest, it was probably the coolest thing I've ever, I've ever done. Right. Is give your parents a key to something that they gave to you for 25 years. And even though it happened in the, the worst possible mm -hmm. way the the rebirth of it was was amazing and that's why um the car's license plate is actually phoenix oh, so man. the 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 rebirth and rising from the ashes and everything but uh yeah so that's that's my dream car that's a great I'm story very, man I'm very fortunate to to be able to have that dude i love that what is the scariest set you've ever done oh boy all right. Scariest set I've ever done was my first uh, 800 pound squat. Uh, yeah, for sure. 
Whereas <laughs> even even regular, even if it would have went perfect, right? Yeah. Even if he didn't so, squat it high. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I'm a wide squatter. If you were there in person, eye level thing, you know. Uh, you know. Okay, got um, it. So look, leading up to that meet, um, this is when Casey and the guys were really pushing me. Mm-hmm. And my goal going into that meet, my, my best competition squad up to that point was uh 735 or 745 mm-hmm. and my last training session i was going to take 765 and casey goes what the fuck are you doing we're putting 785 on the bar you're going to stand up if you give the effort it just depends on how well you do it mm-hmm. so, I, so i squatted it felt a pop in my hamstring we're two weeks out from the meet right i'm like shit i don't know what's going to happen but i rehabbed it did the best i could we get on the platform. I take 760 for my second attempt. And I've started, as I'm going down, I started like like blacking out. I didn't know where I was in the bottom of the squat. I felt the tension in my hips and in the wraps, and I just stood up. And it was high. So I knew my goal that meet was to total 2,000 pounds. And I knew I needed a good squat. So I come over and I say, Casey, what am I doing? on this third attempt. Do I just take that again? He goes, fuck no. I'm putting an 804 on the bar and you're going to go down and you're not going to come up until I say up. And I was like, okay. So I get under the bar and I realized something was off. Not with me, with, with the rack. And they had my rack height incorrect. It was, it was like a, a, a hole or a hole and a half lower. Mm. So I go to unrack and I wedge my hips and because of it being lower, my hips uh, wedged in harder than they normally would. And I started falling backwards as soon as I unracked it. And the spotters catch me. They put me back in the rack. Um, my buddy, Jabez Burford, a really good squatter, comes up and he slowly, he says, hey, calm down. I'm going to adjust your rack height. Adjust the rack height a little bit. I get back under and I remember I could hear a bunch of noise. You know, I heard everybody saying, you know, you got this, you got this. That doesn't fucking matter <laughs> because in your mind, I'm getting under this bar and I take a breath and I go, man, I don't know if I got this. You know, it was like the first time I had ever said that in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was exhausted and I get under and my dad wasn't there, but I heard his voice and he was like, Hey boy, get back under that bar. That's all I heard. That's all I heard. dude. And I get under that bar and I stand up and I unrack it and it felt like it crushed me. Yep. Crushed me. I'm, I'm bent forward and I take as much air as I can, get as big as I can, and I'm going down. And it's the heaviest squat like feeling that I've ever felt in my life. And I keep going down. And I hear Casey say up. And I just remember trying to stand up like I was going to die if I didn't. <laughs> and as soon as I come up, I feel my hamstring tear. I'm coming up and I'm like, fuck it. We are in this now, boy. And you are standing up. Yep. And I stood up. Good lift. According to some people, not you. <laughs> I'm not a judge. That's right. I'm just a and, dude uh, on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember that was the most terrified I'd ever been to get back under a bar. Yet the most willing that I'd ever been to accept whatever the outcome was going to be. 
And that, that squat defined me as a lifter, as a person, as a coach, because of what I went through. I love that. I love that. Mine was, I have two. One was during COVID. I squatted 750 for two in my basement by myself on an ER rack. Nice. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't get video of it. Well, then it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Um, but the scariest one I ever did was uh, I tore my quad four weeks out from a meet, rehabbed it, took my opener, tore it again, loaded 700. And I'm like, I'm going to squat this or I'm going to not stand up. Was that was that the ghost clash? No, no, no. I never did ghost. It was like a local like CPL nationals meet, but okay. uh, it's like IPL aff affiliate. I did it in sleeves. So I sat, sat down, pushed right quad tore like Velcro. Like I just felt Velcro tear the knees. Like, Oh yeah. Boy. Squatted 700 on one leg. Like, yeah. We're done. We're done here. Yeah. yeah. Finished the you meet. Gotta, you got to go through that though. I think everybody yeah. needs. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's one album you can listen to? No skips. So I'll be honest, I'm not a huge like know the album kind of guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I know I know the artists, I know the songs, but I've I've never really researched like the names of the albums. But I can tell <laughs> you right now, you put on a majority and I'm gonna be that that dude. You put on a majority of Metallica albums. I was and, thought you were gonna say like Evanescence. <laughs> 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 at times it it depends on uh you need a good on, cry yeah yeah it depends on the mood um nah man i can put on metallica any day of the week and just want to want to take over the world but i'll tell you recently recently because this is how old we are when creed announced that they were coming back out and they were going on tour that's what we've had creed squat saturdays in the gym where oh that's all that's no right sacrifice. that's right and you know what you know what attracted me to them so much was all those tr elite fts training videos that dave made oh yeah and all of them had creed playing in the background creator tool he loves right. tool guy yeah. yeah last question who is one person you would like me to interview on this podcast the caveat being is you have to help me get them on man Paul, that's like the hardest question. That's the hardest question. You, man, you know what? One person that you always see interviewing people, but you never see them just sit down, no holds barred, and just say what's on their mind is Dave. Dave, Dave Tate. He... Like, and I know he's busy as shit. He's probably not going to come on the podcast. Really? But he spent so much time, you know, wanting to bring other coaches and other lifters to the forefront for people to learn. But unless you go talk to him in person or, you know, I've been fortunate enough to go to the Learn to Train seminars and some of the summits. And at the end of those, he sits down and he goes, all right, all the cameras – all the phones turn the fuck off. We're not recording this. You know, this is just everything goes just conversation. And it's some of the best stuff I've ever heard. He, uh, 
when I did the podcast with him, he sat with me for like six hours over the course of that day, just talking. Yes. It was unreal. I'll, I will reach out. I'm actually going to reach out to him and see if uh, I can get back on the podcast. I want to do, I want to do it with Liv after she gets her pro card. Yeah. I think yeah. that'd be a lot of fun. That'd be a lot of fun, man. Dude, I really appreciate your time coming on. It's always a great time to chat. I would love to do as many of these as you want. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, next time you come to Pittsburgh or uh, when I finally make it up to, to Canada to visit, well, let's just let's just uh, stay mic'd up for the whole weekend and we'll take some bits from That'd be so from good. My editor would love that. <laughs> I'm sure we would have to be careful with some of the stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, man, listen, man, thank so you. Much. My pleasure. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Uh, if you want to find Curtis, his links will be in the show notes. Thank you so much. Please make sure to like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell for notifications. We'll see you next time.